I thought we would continue our talk that we began last time on what is a happy person. Uh, incidentally, Gail mentioned the whole wheat donuts. Uh, but as you know, as you've been reading, and as she told you last time, whole wheat has now been detected to uh, suck out the little B vitamins in your body. <clears throat> and uh, the white flour, uh, gosh, I don't know what it sucks to your soul, something. <laughs> <clears throat> and so uh, one of the deacons uh, has come up with uh, a very interesting uh, flour. It's uh, ground millet and uh, crushed garbanzo beans. <laughs> I knew that there was some use for garbanzo beans. And instead of having the jelly filled, uh, we're going to have yogurt filled. April Fools! But actually, uh, as you know, we've been offering the Girl Scout cookies, but now we've got Findhorn cookies. <laughs> A friend of ours last Easter put out carob Easter eggs for our children, and when, they, when they, they got the Easter eggs and they bit into them, and there was this look of utter betrayal. <laughs> so anyway, we're going to continue on with uh, what is a happy person, and uh, of course you remember the points that we covered last time. You remember, of course, that there are ten points, and we have covered point one and point three. Now, people, as you know, this is this is the last year. This is the graduate year of the dispensable church, and uh, we're going to have our uh, tri-semester exams next Sunday. Uh, we're going to bring in a busload of tourists. And while they take pictures of you, we're going to see if you can be peaceful. <laughs> so as you recall, we, we did point number one. We skipped point number two, which was uh, that the happy person has a disciplined mind. And uh, we, went on to, uh, <laughs> we went on to number three, which was almost as difficult which is that the happy person does not criticize. So let me summarize uh, just a little bit of point number three. We mentioned last time that all thoughts are circular. Shakespeare's insight was, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Another way of putting that is that, well, do you know the expression, that's a comforting thought? That's, that's a familiar expression. That's a comforting thought. I don't know of the opposite expression, but I don't know that there is an opposite expression. But we were over at uh, a friend's house a while back. This particular friend loves cameras. He buys uh, every kind of camera that as soon as it hits the market, it seems like he's got it all different sizes and they can do all different kinds of things. He's very good at it, although he's, he happens to be a child psychiatrist. It's not his occupation. So when we go over, he often brings out a new camera for us to see. And on this one occasion, after he'd shown us this camera, uh, we asked him, uh, Bill, how many cameras do you have now? And he seemed subdued for just a second or two. And then he said, that's not a happy question. <laughs> that's the closest I've heard to an opposite of that's a comforting thought. That's not a happy question. And it wasn't a happy question. I realized later that there was just the slightest little judgment tucked in there. <laughs> you know, somehow he should not be buying all this. Why he shouldn't? I don't know. So nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. All, all attack, all criticism attacks the criticizer. 
That's a comforting thought. That's not a happy question. And then from A Course in Miracles is the statement that ideas do not leave their source. That, of course, is the premise behind all of it. And as we mentioned last time, it does seem on the occasion that we can voice the criticism criticism, and that it will leave us and attach itself to the other person. It will diminish the other person and so enhance us. That's the illusion. But ideas do not leave their source. We still believe the criticism and so it stays with us like a thorn in the shoe, like a little piece of sand in the eye. It stays there. No matter how much we attribute this to the other person, it is now a part of us. And I'm sure you have noticed this, that it's almost as if a criticism or an attack on another person, however mild, even if done in jest, which is so popular now, this particular time, to criticize people in a joking manner. And now they have to laugh along with you. (laughs) That that criticism stays with you. It rankles the mind. And it does not leave you. Now, there are, of course, different levels of learning. And on an earlier level of learning, as we also mentioned last time, remember this is a view, people, a view. Um, what did we mention last time? <laughs> as we mentioned last time, the criticism becomes almost like part of your identity. But at an earlier stage, you have this feeling of justification. And so you might begin noticing these particular emotions that go off inside you as you gossip, because surely gossip seems to be the the spice of every office. Uh, It seems to make any boring party suddenly interesting. When there is gossip, it is something that is relied upon quite heavily. And because of the tinge of anxiety that accompanies it, it does seem as if it adds something, that it's a pickup, it's a stimulant. But if you look a little closer, you'll see it is nothing more than a form of fear because we attack a member of our family, because we are one people, and because everyone is our brother and our sister, And that fact is deep in our heart. We know this to be true. And so when we do attack, even though it's a mild little attack, in the early stages, there will be a sense of guilt or anxiety. So notice that when you criticize, when you gossip, when you say something about someone else, when you take sides against another person, Notice that there is just the slightest tinge of anxiety or guilt. And then notice that there is immediately after that a feeling of justification, a feeling of righteousness, of being right. So that's the symptom at one stage of learning as we attack someone else. First, anxiety, and then a feeling of being right, they deserve it. It's too bad, but this they have this coming to them. You didn't make the world. You didn't make this other person's behavior. This is simply the way it is, and being a good citizen, you are reporting it. <laughs> now, what happens, as we mentioned last time also, is that another stage comes, another stage of learning, in which... The criticism does not leave you. Now, it didn't leave you before, but it seemed to leave you. And remember back in the days when you could gossip endlessly and would think nothing of it. It was just something that you did. Possibly someone would call call you on it. 
maybe it would get back to someone in the office what you had said, but that seemed unjust, didn't it? It was merely just a passing little thing, a a moment's entertainment. Possibly it was just a, a form of kidding. You didn't really mean anything by it. And so the fact that it got back to the person seemed somehow like a a bridge of the rules. And you were slightly incensed that they would even bring this up. Or maybe you uh, decided that you would be more careful as to whom you voiced your criticisms to next time so they wouldn't be reported. But you really didn't see any harm. You didn't see that you had done any harm. And you didn't seem to feel any harm. Now, as you work on the simple things that we have talked about this last two and a third years at the Dispensable Church, as you work on simple gentleness and kindness, as you work hard at being happy and at peace, as you work on sensing your oneness with other people as you work on not getting caught up in the endless array of problems that present you day after day after day, but finding a gentler way to walk, an easier way to walk, a way that brings more comfort to other people, then will come this second stage. And that is, the criticism will not leave you. It will be like a part of your identity. And you will think about it maybe for days. And instead of there being a feeling of justification, there will now be a feeling of sadness. Be very happy when you begin experiencing what I'm talking about. Because the days in which you will attack other people are now numbered. The criticism doesn't leave you. You have this feeling of, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't said that. And regardless of whether you know the concept, because it doesn't matter whether we know these concepts, we can know the concepts but not have experienced them. And we can experience them and not know the concept. The concept is merely a little bridge to the experience. And so many people stop short of the little bridge. They stop with the concept. They just have the concept. They read the concepts. They read endless versions of the concepts, but they do not walk over the little bridge. But if the attack is now not leaving you, and if you have this feeling of regret and sadness, and if you begin to see the complication that this brings then whether you know the concept or not, you are experiencing the fact that ideas do not leave their source and that minds are joined and that, in fact, there is only one self. An extremely confusing concept and one that you don't have to entertain unless it's helpful. But it's a fact. There is only one self. There is only one mind. And when you attack someone else, you attack yourself. Now, in the beginning, this is not believed. We believe in a discreet attack. We think that we can attack only this person over here. And so another thing that you will notice at this second level of learning is that you cannot attack anyone or anything without it spreading It spreads immediately. You cannot criticize yourself out of a sense of virtuousness or humility without attacking other people. Notice that you cannot entertain any attack thought whatsoever without immediately it going to even the ones you love. You cannot cling your child to you and defend your child against your awful spouse who won't let the child have candy or whatever the thing, whatever the issue is. It doesn't matter what the issue is. 
or in some less dramatic form in which you simply countermand the order or in which you simply let it be known that you don't agree with the stand that your spouse has taken about the child. I, I mentioned children because people think that they can have this pure love in which they can circle the child with the love but have it extend to no one else. You cannot attack the neighbor's child without attacking your own child. You cannot attack another couple without attacking the couple of which you are a member. You cannot attack anything without attacking everything at once. And this is you'll begin to experience whether you know the concept or not. There is no discrete attack. You are doing one of two things with your mind at all times. You are either blessing or you are attacking. There is nothing else to do with your mind. There do seem to be very pleasant forms of attack. Nice forms of attack. Exciting forms of attack. Patriotic forms of attack. But attack is of a whole. It takes sides. It wishes harm. And harm knows no boundary. Once you begin to realize that all thoughts are circular, then you will understand why people don't step on bugs or don't eat meat or these other kinds of things. It isn't necessarily that these individuals believe that there's something wrong with those activities, but it is the thought involved. And if they know that they cannot personally kill an insect without a thought of harm, they, do, they wish no thought of harm within their mind. But you see, there's no rule here because another parent would kill the insect to protect, for example, the, the child that's in the house. Maybe this particular insect could kill the child. And so to not kill the insect in that case would entertain the thought of harm, harm to the child. There is no rule there. But you can at least understand why people avoid killing even the least little thing, attacking even the least little thing. Because they want not one single thought of harm in their mind. They want their mind clean and unpolluted, like a mirror that reflects only the gentleness of God, only the love that we have for each other in our heart, no matter how deeply buried it may seem to be. So here's the guideline concerning criticism, attack thoughts. Don't let the thought leave your mind. That was the thing we talked about last time. So at least stop short of acting it out, getting other people caught up in it. This does not let loose of it. And so there is something better than acting out, if by acting out you mean getting other egos caught up in it. This, of course, does not mean acting out in the sense that you may do something physical to let go of the thought, it's often a, a good thing to do something physical to let go of a thought because it has a great deal of symbolism for us. And so it's perfectly all right to beat pillows or to... Uh, I remember once I put someone's uh, head, pictured someone's head on a log and took my trusty axe to the log. <laughs> it was better than my saying what I had to say to the person. And after a few minutes, it was very interesting. I changed from hating this person to loving them. I don't know why that had that effect. I guess it's because I looked straight at it and realized this is not how I truly felt about this individual. But by acting it out in that way, I saw through the murderous rage 
and I, I felt true compassion. And it was unexpected. I didn't think that was going to happen. I am not recommending that you all go out <laughs> and buy axes. But there's a difference between handling, handling yourself, even if it's uh, in a physical way, and getting other people involved in it. It will simply make your life easier. You will be able to let go of it more quickly if you do not voice it, if you do not bring the thing up. We are always bringing things up in relationships. Here's a good little rule. Don't bring it up at the time. Wait and bring it up later. We've talked about this before. If there is a little anger, or if there was a little anger when you thought of this thing you had to bring up, chances are there's going to be anger if you voice it now. And you will feel as if you are attacked back. Notice that the person defends themselves when you bring it up whatever the thing is, it has to be brought up. It doesn't have to be brought up now. Wait until a better time. So that's the first part of the guideline. Do not let the thought leave your mind. Remove its source and repair the damage. So that's the full guideline. Do not let the thought leave your mind. Remove its source and repair the damage. What does it mean to remove its, remove its source? So what do we do about the thought? Because we do believe it. What we do is not fight the ego, not practice dishonesty, not tell ourselves that what the person did is really all right. That's another form of attack. Attack does not rid ourselves of attack. You can only use your mind in one of two ways. And you cannot turn to peace by using attack even to get rid of attack. Because you are valuing attack by using it. It's when you no longer value attack that it leaves your mind. And the way to not value attack is to value something else. And it is your mind, and it is your thought, and there's nothing you have to do about the attack thought you just had. There's nothing you have to do about the mistake you just made. So we all made a mistake. We wouldn't be here if we hadn't made a mistake. This is not a philosophical... Uh, concept that uh, you have to accept. But the world is a place of mistakes. Coming to the world is a mistake. And the way we leave the world is by making mistakes. Mistakes is our, are our way home. Mistakes are a good thing. Dwelling on a mistake is another mistake. It's not a good thing because you want to go from the mistake to seeing it as a mistake. And so you're going to make mistakes. We expect too much of ourselves if we think we aren't going to make a mistake. When the time comes that you are no longer making mistakes, then it will just be a very short time before you will lay aside your body. This is not something you have to believe. It's simply the course of things. The point is that you need not make the mistake. You need only see the mistake because a mistake calls only for correction. You need not make the mistake of dwelling on what you just did. Just see it. Ah, that was a mistake. Maybe you'll say to yourself, next time I'll try such and such. And then you go ahead. 
Your progress will become so much more rapid when you see how simple it can be. You just see the mistake. You acknowledge it. You look at it for a moment. Don't deny it. Just look at it. See, indeed, it was a mistake. Was it gentleness? Was it peace? Did it create a sense of joining and oneness? Then it was a mistake if it did not do those things. Did it make you happy? Then it was a mistake if it did not do that. That's all you need to see. To try to understand it is to give it meaning. A mistake has no meaning except that it points in a direction. That's all it is. A mistake is a little pointer. It's a needed pointer. We need the mistake. It was still in our mind to do this. We still thought something would come of it or we wouldn't have done it. It doesn't matter that we thought we put this aside years and years ago. We, If we did it, there was still a lingering doubt. That doubt must be put aside before you awaken, before you will be a truly happy person, if you don't like that term, awaken, before you will be a consistently happy person. That doubt has to be put aside. And by making the mistake, you may have put it aside. Maybe you'll have to make it X number of times more. So if you can develop the habit of being glad for your mistakes, being happy for your mistakes, because they point in a direction, they show you what you want to do, now you are a little sure in this one area. Area, You weren't as sure as you thought you were. You thought you were further along, but you weren't further along. So what difference does it make? You did the mistake, it surprised you, and now you look at it and see what you need to see. I don't want to do that. Sit down, cry if you need to cry, and say, I don't want to do that. Go to your heart, see the kind of person you want to be, and then get up and try once more to be that kind of person. Now we're going back to number two. Now, I hope you're keeping... Remember now, the bus of tourists comes next time. Exam time. So that was number three. We're going back to number two. <coughs> We could call it number five. Or we could say, uh, we forgot to include it on the list. A happy person has a disciplined mind. Now, as you remember, I couldn't get to that point last time. I kept trying to get to that point and I wasn't able to, so I sat down this week and looked to see why I wasn't getting that point, and here is the reason. And that is that most people make a war out of this very simple spiritual practice. It is absolutely essential. But so many people make a war of it because they're not quite ready to undertake a true disciplining of their mind, and they think there's some battle to fight. And there is no hell greater than trying to stop thinking. Now, the time will come in which you will see that all of your thoughts hurt you. Every single thought you think hurts you unless there is this sense of deliberateness or certainty to the thought in which you are reminding yourself of some truth, of some direction, of some purpose. Or, unless, of course, you have turned your mind to another realm, to another level, you've turned your mind to peace, 
and there is this lovely insight, and there are words that accompany it. It so often happens. The lovely insight and the words that accompany it. But if you take away those two things, the sort of deliberate reminding our mind of truth or the insight, then every worded thought you have hurts you. But there isn't anything to do about that until you have reached the level in which you have seen that to be true. What do you do until you know that for a fact? Because just saying it to yourself will just get you into a war. And you'll try to stop thinking, not knowing why you're trying to do this, why you're trying to engage in this practice. And many of the Eastern practices of which this is included, although it wouldn't be worded in that way, trying to stop thinking, we simply are not ready for but you can be ready for it very, very quickly if you will take it one step at a time. Then you get to that level. And so let's look at some different levels of disciplining the mind. Possibly the easiest level and the one that most people can benefit from and everyone, of course, could benefit from it to some degree is to simply think gently. Maybe many of you use uh, spiritual practices when you sleep at night. Maybe you have some mantra that you say to yourself or something in particular that you do with your mind if you're having a difficult time sleeping or if you can't get yourself settled down to sleep. And maybe you do this thing, such as listening to the sounds around you are dwelling on some particular uh, subject that has love in it. Maybe you picture some place where you would like to be, where you'd be relaxed and feel safe. And because there's love in it, it calms the mind. And so many of you have a very definite sense of what it means to rest your mind, to think in a restful way. It doesn't mean particular words. It doesn't mean that you have to have any spiritual vocabulary at all. But we have a sense of thinking in an agitated, fearful, disturbing, discomforting, unhappy way, and simply thinking in a restful way. But at night when we're trying to sleep, this becomes particularly obvious. You can sense what is a restful way to use your mind because you will move towards sleep, possibly, or at least towards bodily rest. And then you know the kinds of thoughts that seem to stir up the body. To undertake the difference is to discipline the mind. And so to have the simple goal that today you will rest your mind, you will think gently, you will think peacefully, you will use your mind in a gentle way, you will think gently about the people who come to mind, you will think gently, understandingly about the things that your eyes rest upon. That is a good first step in disciplining the mind, to see the distinction between this hard, agitated, throbbing, thrusting, questioning, and inevitably depressed, discouraged, dark state of mind, and the gentle state of mind that walks through the world as Christ walked on water not disturbing it. That's the way you wish your mind to treat everything. You wish your mind to be like a gentle breeze that refreshes, that circles everything. It's not afraid. It's not timid. It goes anywhere. The gentle breeze goes into the slaughterhouse. It goes into the asylum. It goes into the sick room. 
as well as to the mountaintop and the temple and the White House. It goes anywhere, but it disturbs nothing. It refreshes. That's the way you wish your thoughts to be. You wish them to brush gently against everything, to see it with understanding, with sympathy, the way your friend sees you, the way your guide, your teacher, who has been with you always, who used to talk to you through your teddy bear, who used to sit on the side of the bed with you at night and comfort you. And yes, we've forgotten that. But the friend is still there. And you're still comforted. And how gently has your comforter led you? Hasn't it been gentle? So gentle. Very patient, no matter how many mistakes. This is the way to walk. Forget the mistake and walk this way. And that's what you wish to say to your brother and sister, not with words, but simply to say in your heart, you're doing the best you can. You did the best you can in this incident. We all do the best we can, except in the present. Now, in the present, you can try hard. You can do a little better. But as soon as it's done, it was the best you could do. And it was the best that they could do. And so what's to condemn? They won't be there a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. Will they? And so what's to condemn? This was part of their way home. Possibly it was a mistake. Rejoice with them for their mistake. It taught them a little something. And that's the way you wish your mind to be. Gentle. Forgiving. Like a soft light. Like moonlight. Have you noticed how moonlight seems to unify the landscape? It seems to make everything one thing. This soft, golden light. And it just seems to put stillness all over everything. Or the way a snowfall does, a fresh snowfall, how it unifies it all. That's the way you wish your mind to be, to unify it all. You wish no dark patches. You wish no exclusions. You truly do not wish that. You wish to encompass and to heal and to help. And so disciplining, disciplining the mind on the first level is simply that, just deciding that you will think gently today. You will think in a restful, easy, forgiving, generous, understanding way. You will be a gentle breeze. You will have an innocent vision. Now let's move to a little bit more difficult level. Not a better level. How could there be a better, better level than that? That one level would take you all the way. But the ego has this thirst for difficulty and complication. As I've told you uh, so many times before, A Course in Miracles says, you think this course is too simple for you to learn, but you'll find a way to make it difficult enough that you'll be able to learn it. And so let's take another level of difficulty. And that is setting a goal. Let me give you an example. I gave this to you a long time ago. But when has that ever stopped me? <laughs> a couple of Sundays ago, there was a couple visiting our church. I don't think they uh, are here this time. They live in Texas. And they make periodic visits to uh, Santa Fe. They're both therapists. And they happened to be the first couple that I uh, married. Uh, but it wasn't legal. I hadn't yet received my uh, doctor of dispensability yet. I, 
so they they had asked me to conduct the service, and so I got Carol Bell Knight to come with me to do it, to make it legal. And as I say, I've told you this story once before, but it illustrates this point so well, the second level. Well, I'll tell you the first part. It's not quite so relevant, and that is that the... Uh, that the uh, service was held in a teepee. This is nothing unusual in Santa Fe. I know that's not going to be of interest to you, but um, and uh, I conducted the uh, I conducted the uh, service and so forth. And then Carol came in and did the closing prayer and then made it all official uh, by the power invested in me, you know that kind of thing. And uh, so as she was wrapping up the service. And as she was uh, uh, saying the final prayer, uh, John, who was two years old at that time, turned to his mother in the teepee, which is very, was very close space, and said, I want a pee-pee. <laughs> and so the prayer went on. And of course, children know what to do when there's no acknowledgement. They, they raise the volume. <laughs> I want a pee-pee. And the prayer went on. Mama, I want a pee-pee. And so Carol, who uh, has learned that the lesson that nothing has to go right today, started incur- incorporating the word pee-pee into the prayer. <laughs> and may the love that you have for each other be as golden and shining as pee-pee. <laughs> and things like that, you see. So it ended, uh, their service ended very happily, and uh, the couple who had not learned their lesson invited John to come to the formal wedding dinner <laughs> afterwards. So we went over to a nice restaurant. Now, David and I are from Texas, as you know, and uh, I, was, I was taught that uh, at a nice restaurant, you do not tuck your napkin in to your collar. Why? I don't know. I mean, it's a very practical thing to do, but you don't do this at a nice... Were you taught that, David? Uh, except if you eat bouillabaisse. Now, if you eat bouillabaisse, then the waiter comes and tucks the napkin in at a very nice restaurant, but you must titter guiltily as this is done. Notice that everyone titters guiltily if they're eating lobster or bouillabaisse and someone puts a thing around their neck, you see. So we got there, and the glasses were set all around the table and everything, and there were nice linen napkins, and they were, they were uh, wrapped, I mean, they were uh, like a little rod or something, and they were stuck in the water glass, empty water glass. Have you seen that done? Uh, now, it's true I had learned you don't tuck your napkin in your uh, collar, but I had never learned when do you put your napkin in your lap? I'd never learned that. I still don't know when you put your napkin in your lap. But here was a situation in which if I made a mistake, it was going to be very obvious because there was the glass and the napkin. And, uh, you know, so John was there. John knew exactly what to do. He took the napkin out immediately and played tent with it. Then he took his utensils, his knives and forks and everything, and he put them in the water glass. And he looked around the table because he indeed had everyone's attention. And he said, this is a birthday cake. And he got out a, an imaginary box of matches and he started he lit the fork and he lit the knife and so forth. And then he passed to the adult on his right. And this glass went all the way around. And he was very vigilant. And he would stop any adult and said, you missed the fork. And they'd have to light it again and blow it out. I mean, excuse me, they were blowing it out that time. Then the um, salad came, and the salad was garnished with olives, uh, black olives. I, I happen to know that John does not like olives, and uh, so I was watching him with interest. Now, these were sliced black olives. John looked at the salad, immediately saw that these were racing tires, <laughs> and set up a drag strip right there on the, on the linen tablecloth. It's uh, remarkable how black olives and linen can uh, simulate laying down rubber. Uh, 
And the grated cheese uh, was modeling clay, and so I've just, I went on and on and on, you see, I thought. And since everyone was having such a good fun with this, uh, I never did say anything about it because it is, of course, not a happy thing to allow children to fight the strong beliefs that adults have. And if uh, the situation had been such in which this was making people unhappy, I would have had him stop it. But uh, they all thought it was just wonderful. And the lesson was very good for me because I knew that I had a separate purpose for a linen napkin. It meant just about one thing and only one thing to me, and it was not a happy thing. And the same thing was true about ingredients that I didn't like in uh, food. That would simply ruin the dish for me, and that would be the end of it, uh, and so forth. Every single thing on the table had a separate function because I was an adult. Forks uh, were for uh, spearing and lifting, and uh, knives were for cutting, and so forth. Each had a separate function, but not to the, to the mind of a child. The mind of a child, if it's young enough, it has, if it hasn't yet been polluted by the world's multiple purposes, assigns a single purpose to everything, enjoyment. Everything is to be enjoyed. And rocks and sticks and trees and, and even deformities. I, I, uh, Gail and I took a couple of uh, four-year-olds to a pool recently that they had been to before, a little children's pool. And on this day, uh, the pool was not filled with uh, children. It was filled with adults with Down syndrome and uh, severe Down syndrome. That's all, for some reason, there were just, that was nothing but what was in the pool. I guess uh, some institute or something had brought the people there. They were all under care. And I watched as uh, the two four-year-olds got into the pool, and there was no reaction. They didn't see the Down syndrome. And the, the adults were just having a great time, and the children had a great time. And after the adults left, I listened, and there was no comment made about it. They simply had overlooked it. It didn't mean anything to them. What meant something to them was that the adults knew the same thing they knew, that everything was for fun. The pool was for fun, and the water was for fun, and the voice was for fun. And so they had, they had this oneness with them. And I know you have seen this with children, or many of you have, even with things that we think of as deformities, like uh, something wrong with someone's hand or just missing a finger. A child can be just delighted with that. Everything is for fun for a little child. Now, of course, this is quickly educated out of them. And it's silly to make children as models of behavior because they do not come into the world knowing everything they need to know to be happy. If they knew everything they need to know to be happy, they would continue being happy. But, of course, they don't continue being happy. And what is the one thing that the child does not come into the world with? A clear, defined sense of direction. They have an inherent sense of direction. They have a natural sense of purpose. But it has not turned into a conscious direction. And so they can easily be led off into another direction, another purpose. And then very quickly we see children fighting over toys and making other children unhappy by calling them names and everything else, do you see? So what is the second stage? It is simply having a single purpose and assigning a single purpose to everything. Another way of saying that is having a single interpretation and giving one interpretation to everything you see and everything you do. This, you can see, is more difficult. It is actually the same as the first. But it has some more deliberateness to it. It has a sharper focus to it. And that's why I have suggested that if you wish to make progress quickly, 
that you begin the day by setting such a purpose. It doesn't matter how you word it. Just that you get up, and as quickly as you can, you orient your mind in the direction that you wish it to go. Because you were given a shove at childhood, and we are still stumbling in that direction. And we will continue to stumble in the direction we were shoved at childhood until we make a decision to change it. And that decision does not have to be made at once. Very few people are able to make it at once. We hear of stories of people making it at one instant. But isn't it obvious how few are capable of doing that? A single decision can be made a little bit at a time, and that's what your setting of a daily purpose does. You try again each day. Today I will judge nothing that occurs is such a purpose. And so everything serves your purpose. The more outrageous it is, the more it serves your purpose not to judge it. Now there's the third level, the most difficult. And I see that uh, that uh, for some reason, <laughs> I have a feeling that we're, we're uh, almost filled up here. Uh, that uh, I tell you what, let's do. Let's let's just stop right now. We've got about five, five or ten more minutes at the most. Let's just see at this point if there's a question or a comment or something. Yes. Yes. Right. That's that's very good. That's a wonderful insight. So what she said was that she will she'll find herself just describing some person in her mind just thinking about their characteristics or their differences or something, and that it deteriorates into an attack, she's noticed. This is true of all thoughts. Ah, so maybe this is the time to bring in this third level. There's, uh, uh, I've mentioned this before, and I would not advise it unless you're absolutely sure that this helps. What does it mean that it helps? That it truly relaxes you, makes you more comfortable, It makes you feel more certain of your arrival, of your destiny. If any practice does not make you feel more sure of your arrival, more confident of your way, then it is not a good practice. Either you're beyond it, or it's irrelevant to your particular uh, personality and work habits and so forth, or you're not quite ready for it. And it doesn't matter which of those three it is. But it is the practice of mental stillness. So let me just tell you what I'm doing at the moment. Gail and I are working very hard on disciplining our minds. And we we have a program that lasts maybe a week. And then we change it and we try something else. And we keep working at this. Because we realize that our minds are highly undisciplined that they are not focused, and that they ramble all over the place, and that we wish stillness. Now, once again, there is no fight here. You see, this is why it's, it's almost dangerous to mention this kind of thing in, in a group this large, because somebody's going to walk out of here and start doing battle with their mind. For heaven's sakes, don't do that. If this feels good, then do it. Otherwise, forget it. It's just one of the crazy things that Hugh talked about, and how many crazy things has he talked about? So at the moment, I'm doing three things, and I've been doing them for several days, and I'll do them for several more days. I'm working on three things with my mind. Number one is stillness. Now, some people cannot even still their mind so that it is not thinking a thought. Some people simply cannot do that. And so, of course, this would be a ridiculous exercise. And it's unimportant. And I've told you this little part of it before, that I have to break this down into little segments. So as I'm driving around down on the street, I look at a uh, power line, and then I look at another power line up ahead. And I say to myself, I will not think a single thought from this power line to that power line, or from this house to that corner. 
little short distances, and I have a sense of resolve that I'm going to do this. Now, as I do this, there is a cumulative effect. My, my mind becomes quieter and quieter as I do this. Once again, people, don't try this kind of thing unless it makes you happy. If there's a sense of struggle, don't do this. I'm simply telling you that the time will come in which you realize that all of your thoughts hurt you just as this woman has begun to realize. All of your thoughts deteriorate. All of your thoughts spell separation. Except the gentle whispering of your deeper self, which is sometimes accompanied in words and sometimes isn't, or this deliberate saying of truth. So in the house, what I do is I say, okay, now I'm going to make the bed. So from the time I start until the time I end, I will not think. I will not think a single thought. Why would I want to do that? You see, for most people, this sounds ridiculous. Because I want to know God. And I've noticed that my thoughts are a tremendous din, a racket. And I cannot hear God. I cannot feel God. I cannot sense God with all this clamor going on in my mind. But I now see that. Because I can tell you frankly, I tried this kind of thing several years ago and it was disastrous. It was not a happy thing for me to do. I simply am at the point where I genuinely see, I genuinely see that all my thoughts hurt me. And I don't want them. I want a still mind. I want my mind to be as still as God. I want my mind to be pure peace. And so I am beginning a work, and it's going to take me a long time. But so what? Because each gain brings a little more rest, a little more stillness, a little more happiness. So that's part of it. The second one is the one I've already mentioned today. I criticize nothing. I'm very careful that I am not critical of anything whatsoever. And some people would not see the point in that. They would think that things deserve criticism. And so that would be another battle. And the third thing is even more abstract. abstract, And that is, I remind myself of who I am. And so I say to myself, I know who I am and I know what I am doing. But this concept just sits in people's minds. You say something like this and it'll just sit there and it's of no use to them. But I'll give you the concept because for some of you, it would be very useful. And for others, you're already using it. What are you? What are you? Are you the Spirit of Christ? Are you the light of the world? I say what I am, and then I say what I'm doing. What am I doing? I'm taking this little part of my mind called the ego and I'm teaching it how to be happy. And so I talk to my mind during the day. And this is the third thing. I talk very gently to it. And I tell it very gently how it can be happy. I do not argue with it. I do not fight it. I do not oppose it. I do not make rules for it. I just whisper to it. My ego, this little thing called Hugh, who was born one place and is going to die in another. This little ego, who is so unhappy as all egos are. And I simply say to it, Hugh, <laughs> well, I can't tell you exactly. <laughs> Just stay in the present. Just stay in the present, Hugh. It's not going to make you happy to think about that. Hugh, sometimes I do do that, but it's not a fight. You see, I'm just getting its attention. 